We are venturing out into a new series today that we will follow through the season of Advent, focusing upon Jesus and all that he is for us, and we will continue that into the new year, right until our transition back into our building. And so Hebrews is the last part of the journey for us. We're reading this morning from Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, this morning as we gather before your word, we recognize that we're weak and we're dependent that we need you to instruct us and lead us, that you guide us into all truth. And so send forth your light and your truth this morning by the power of your spirit. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. After three careers as a surgeon, as a lawyer, and finally as a businessman, Bernard Ferrari settled into a professional career, one final career as a business consultant. From all these varied experiences, he picked up one simple tool that he believed he could help others with in consulting. He then published a book about this one simple tool. The book is entitled Power Listening. In the first chapter, he captures the tool and the lesson that he's often paid thousands of dollars, copious amounts of money to communicate, especially to CEOs. There had been a significant business failure, and the CEO was gathering his management team, and he asked Bernard to sit in on the meeting. The CEO opened the meeting with a very simple question. Why didn't anyone see this coming? People around the table shared furtive glances. They began to uncomfortably shift in their chairs. It was a meeting filled with tension. And finally, one woman bravely said, you know, we tried to tell you several times. We were never sure you were listening. (laughs) And we've all had the experience, unfortunately, of not being listened to. It's marginalizing. It's quite irritating. And we, too, have also been guilty of selective hearing from time to time, perhaps. Good listening is not the easiest thing for us to exercise. It's hard to come by. And the thing is, it doesn't simply apply to our relationships with our family or to our friends or to our coworkers. But good listening, the art of good listening, also applies to our relationship with God. It applies to our spirituality. It's imperative that we exercise good listening. And this type of listening is one of the main concerns of the book of Hebrews. It's a 13-chapter book. Most scholars agree that it's something more of a sermon than perhaps an epistle. We don't know who the author of it is, and we don't know the direct destination. There's lots that we don't know, 
and yet it's one of the most formative books in all of Christian theology. What we do know is that this is directed towards a congregation of Jewish Christians. They had a thick Jewish background in which they understood the texture of the Old Testament. And these Christians had started well, but then due to some complacency, due to some apathy, and due to some compromise, they were then drifting away from Jesus Christ. We find this expressed in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They needed to pay attention. They needed to listen to what had been given to them, unless they drift away. And this is the challenge for us today. It's the word of God that continues to come to us. That in our own ingratitude, in our own indifference, we too must listen. That we must pay careful attention to what God has said in Jesus Christ. This is the conclusion of chapter 1 when you reach chapter 2. But chapter 1 is an elaborate argument about why. Why is it that we need to listen so carefully to what God has said in Jesus? And there are three, three arguments that unfold for us there in chapter 1. First, we should listen because God has definitively spoken in Jesus Christ. If you follow in verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The sermon begins with a contrast of God's speech in the past to the fathers by the prophets. And that is contrasted with a speech that is presently given to us by the son in these last days. And so we have this contrast that's laid out for us that we move from God speaking through many, through many prophets, to God speaking through one, the Son of God. These two are united by God's speech. God truly revealed himself in both, but yet they are differentiated in that there's a uniqueness and a finality to what God is saying in his Son. This revelation that comes through the Son doesn't conflict with what was given prior. Rather, the Son completes and the Son fulfills. He brings everything that was once said by the prophets to a climax. And in verse 3, we discover why there is such finality to this revelation. If you follow there, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. And this is the point that when Jesus Christ enters into the world, he is the final revelation of God because he is the true God. He is God incarnate. He makes God known to us. While there had been shadows and there had been images of this God and we had his truth through the prophets, there is a fuller and final manifestation when Jesus shows up on the scene. God has spoken through him. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, points out that there's a certain spiritual dynamic that is created by this that we have to attend to. 
And what Calvin says is that we have to do two things, that we have to advance, that when we're reading scripture and we're relating to Jesus, that we have to advance to the goal, that we're not properly hearing God if Jesus is not the end of what is being said, that he is the goal of everything that scripture speaks towards. But then we also have to learn not just to advance, but we also have to learn to stop. That we have no permission to go beyond Jesus. That we can't put words in God's mouth. We can't say that there's a further revelation, that something full and final has happened in Jesus. That he is the definitive revelation of God. And so this is the dynamic of Christian spirituality that we listen to God because there is this final revelation of Jesus, that he has spoken climatically to us in these last days. And we've learned from him who he is and what he is like in the person of Jesus. And so we advance to Jesus, and then we stop. But the second reason that we should listen is because Jesus' victory is inevitable. If you follow with me in verse 2, halfway through, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now in these verses, the clauses stack up one upon another. There's a dense collection of titles, of events, and also of accolades. And it is easy for us to get lost. What exactly are we to make of this forest of terms? One of the things that's so important, though, to recognize in this dense forest is that there is an arc that these verses traverse. And they take us across ground that goes back to prior to time, the preexistence of Jesus goes to the eternal son who is the agent of creation. And then it moves us into his entry into the world, his incarnation, where he then climatically makes an atonement for sins. And then it delivers us to his enthronement, where he takes up his rule at the right hand of God. And so we move from the eternal son to the incarnate son to the exalted son. That is the arc that's been created here in this short, compressed sentence. But this series of thought begins in one place. It begins with the statement that whom he appointed the heir of all things. That is, before the creation of the world, God appointed Jesus to be the heir of all things, that he is the agent through whom all creation is mediated. And he now, Jesus, upholds the universe, all things that were created by the word of his power, is what Hebrews goes on to say here. And that when he is upholding it, he's sustaining the physical creation. But there's also a sense to this that he's carrying it forward. He's carrying the creation forward to its predestined end, to where God's purpose and plan always wanted it to be. He then enters into that creation because of the problem of sin, and he makes purification for sin. 
And then he sits down at God's right hand, having accomplished his great victory. After he is vindicated, he is exalted, where he rules over the world. And Christians, as the book of Hebrews will make plain, now await his return, his coming again, where the world will be made right and sin will finally be purged and removed from the world. But this is the direction of the thought, that there is a certain inevitability because of who Jesus is and the role that God appointed for him, that he is the heir of all things, that he brought the creation into existence, that he is the one who upholds it, that he made atonement, and that he will return. There is inevitability to this victory. And for us today, this is what we need to hear, is that Jesus' victory is sure and it's central. It was secured in eternity past. It was then affected in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And it will certainly happen because he's ruling the world even today. This week, with some time off with the family, it left time in the Colson household for competitive board games, as you know we like to play. These events are treacherous, to say the least. We were lined up for one of our favorites, a game of Catan, and my oldest son, about halfway through the game, as his game was going very well, he had a head of momentum, said, I am inevitable. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, he was quoting Thanos from one of the Avengers movies. But it did look like he was going to surge from five points to ten points to take the victory. I am inevitable. I told him that he didn't know that he had given me my sermon point. It didn't quite work out for him. Youth sometimes gets the best of your, of your arrogance. But nonetheless, what's important for us to hear this morning is that in the crafting of this very long opening sentence that goes across four verses for us in the original, that what we have here is the statement of inevitability, reaching back into eternity past, taking us into time and taking us into the future, that Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of the nature of God, who brought all things into existence and upholds it today and made the purification for sins, and who is exalted to God's right hand, that he will win. And friends, the task for us is to be on the right side of all of that history. It's common in moral argument today to hear people say you want to be on the right side of history. You want to get this fact right. Fifty years from now, you don't want someone to look back on you and to say, see what a fool, you were so wrong. And the Christian task is to think beyond just its own cultural moment, though. We want to be on the right side of history. And that is what's happening here in Hebrews 1, is we're learning that right side. That at the very heart of reality, God appointed Jesus to be the heir of all things. And there is an inevitability that then unfolds into his great victory. That despite the sin and the rebellion of human beings, he will overcome that. It's inevitable. And so we must listen to him. And we must not drift away. The final reason that we're provided here in Hebrews 1 that we should listen is because Jesus is sufficient. If you follow with me in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
You will then note verses 5 through 14 are an elaborate argument, quotations from the Old Testament about the excellence of Jesus. We don't have time this morning to go through all the details, but it's all directed to this point that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, for many people, for most people, when they hear this, it's quite confusing. What exactly is happening here? It's a little perplexing. It seems remote and obscure, this argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. What's important to remember as we hear those words is that the angels in Judaism were connected with the delivery of the law to Moses at Sinai. And so it was believed, it was a conviction that the angels had delivered the law to Moses. And so what we have here, when the angels are referenced, this is a thick cultural and biblical reference to the idea of the Mosaic law. That the angels is equivalent with that. And so what's being compared is the Mosaic law and Jesus. And we find this unfolding all throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is superior, he's the final revelation of Moses, that Moses is no rival to him. Jesus completes that story. And so this is what's happening here in, this, in the fourth verse, is that Jesus is superior to the angels in the work that they did in delivering the law of Moses. And why this is important is because there was a dynamic taking place in the first century church. We saw this in the book of Galatia several years ago. But here's the dynamic, is that many of the early converts were from Jewish backgrounds. They were steeped in Judaism. They saw Jesus as the completion of all that God had promised through the Jewish system. But one of the advantages that Jews had over the early Christians were that they had a license to practice their religion from the Roman Empire. It was a special license, and it allowed them to practice their religion and to not swear allegiance to the Roman gods. And it was very possible to get into big trouble with the Roman authorities if you did not swear allegiance to the Roman gods. You were considered unpatriotic. And so many of the early Jewish Christians tried to remain as close to Judaism as possible. They wanted to remain under the religious license. And so they retained the practices of the Jewish law, of the Mosaic customs, the sacrifices. They continued all these things. But in the book of Galatians, what we learn is that these Jewish Christians who remained close to their Jewish practices began to say that it was necessary to adhere to the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian. In other words, for a Gentile to be fully converted, they needed to come under Moses. They needed to practice the law. The book of Hebrews is an elaborate argument about why that is not correct. That Jesus has a superior name to the angels who delivered the law. He's ultimate and final. And that he is sufficient. That nothing else needs to be added to him that we place our faith in him as the heir of all things, and that in him we then become heirs. We become adopted sons and daughters. We're brought into an inheritance that we don't deserve and that we've done nothing for, but that he has done everything to secure for us, that he's sufficient for that. And that what was happening, the argument here as the sermon begins, 
is that what is happening is that when we attempt to supplement Jesus, to add something onto him that's necessary in order to fully participate in the inheritance, when we do that, we supplant Jesus. We're saying he's not sufficient. And Hebrews declares in one loud voice that there is one offering for sin once and for all in Jesus Christ, and there are no more sacrifices required. There is no adherence to the purifications of the Mosaic law necessary, that there is nothing that anyone can add. There is nothing that anyone can supplement, nothing that anyone can invent or create that can perfect You're being brought into the family of God by Jesus Christ. And so we must listen to him. And the argument being crafted is because it's better. It's secure in him. In this final vision of salvation, in this work that God has definitively given to us in Jesus. And so we listen. And this is the main concern of Hebrews, is that we pay careful attention to what God has said that we unpack it, that we own it. Because there is a tendency in all of our indifference and all of our ingratitude that can set in in our hearts that we drift and that we move away from and we not pay close attention to all that God has said. That is the main concern of Hebrews. But the main concern is also not the main theme. The main theme is simply Jesus Christ that he is the answer to that concern, to be caught up in him, the one who definitively reveals God to us, the one who is the final word, God's speech incarnate, the one whose victory is inevitable, who from eternity past was appointed the heir, who brought all things into existence, who upholds it for the purpose of bringing it to a climax and the consummation of all things when the world's made right. We listen to this one because he's also sufficient. He's done everything on our behalf. And so we're awakened from our coldness. We're awakened from our indifference. We're awakened from our apathy. Not simply by a threat, but by a vision of who Jesus is. This awesome one. This one who joined us. And in seeing that great vision, we're compelled into following and listening and moving with him, the one who's granted us this great inheritance. So this Advent season, let's listen. Listen carefully to him. Let's pray.